Welcome to episode 58 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we are back with what I think is going to be an awesome episode as we get to spend it talking about one of my favorite camera brands, Yashica. As always, with me tonight are our hosts from Gainesville, Florida, Anthony Rue, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, Paul Reibel, and from Sydney, Australia, Theo Panagopoulos. For this episode, I am super excited to welcome two special guests, both with a very wide range of knowledge of Yashica cameras and their history. First, from Sydney, Australia, is Paul Sock. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Mike. I run a couple of uh, websites. Uh, Yashica TLRs is where I cut my teeth on understanding Yashica cameras and uh, following through on them. I, I bought my first one quite late when I got back into film photography, and uh, I found that um, there was so much misinformation and so so many errors in what had been written that I figured I, the only way I could find out about Yashica cameras was to do my own research. And out of that grew YashicaTLR.com, which is a website with, well, literally probably a thousand pages, book page equipment. After a while, I, uh, I'd written just about everything I thought I could write about Yashica TLRs, and I thought, well, it's maybe time to write about some of the other cameras that um, I've got a real interest in. And so I've got another website called uh, LeicaCopiesJapan.com, which is uh, Leica-Copies-Japan.com, um, uh, uh, covering uh, Canon, Nikka, Leotax, Minolta, and Yoshiko uh, Leica Copies. The, uh, some of the information about models like the Minolta and Canon uh, pick up on information which is out there widely. But when it comes to Nick and Leotax, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, unique information on that that you won't find in other places. And that's, that's where my focus has been over the last few years. Uh, but that's basically in a nutshell. I've uh, collaborated with Paul many times before. Uh, for the most part, if there's something on my site about Nika or Leotex, I probably got it from Paul. So welcome to the show. Uh, joining Paul from Amelia Island, Florida, is Chris Whalen. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Right. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. My name is Chris Whalen, and I'm a retired meteorologist, a U.S. Navy meteorologist. And I picked up uh, my first Yashica camera back in 1972 while I was going to college in South Florida. A uh, Army brat who was uh, in school with me went to the base exchange at the uh, Patrick Air Force Base. And he uh, picked up the Yashica uh, TL Electro X, my very first 35 millimeter SLR. And I guess you could say that's what got me down the yellow brick road of uh, collecting Yashica uh, some 40 years down the road. Uh, I have a WordPress blog called Chasing Classic Cameras with Chris. It's yashikasailorboy.com. And I also have an Instagram uh, that I'm quite active on at CC Photography AI. And the AI is not artificial intelligence. It's for Amelia Island. <laughs> and I've been very active on there to promote my uh, two Etsy shops. Well, primarily my my Etsy camera shop. And uh, I've more or less fallen away from uh, selling cameras on eBay. And I know you probably uh, realize the snake pit that uh, eBay can be uh, in acquiring and selling cameras. But being fully retired, I just buy and sell cameras, fix some, fix some at times, and uh, 
I found a, a good opportunity to buy cameras from the local population who would normally just literally throw their old film cameras away. Uh, I've uh, done very well with meeting these people and buying their collections and, uh, and reselling them. So uh, probably not reselling as many as I should. There's way too many cameras floating around, but we all have that, that same affliction. Chris, I was just up in your neighborhood uh, just about a week ago uh, shooting. I was testing out some cameras at Fort Clinch. Oh, okay. Great place. Yeah, it's a beautiful place to I had the uh uh Fuji G six seventeen out doing panoramas in the tun- in the tunnels. Oh man, you, you had that camera just down the street from me and you didn't call me. <laughs> <laughs> so how far away is Amelia Island from you, Anthony? Maybe ninety minutes. Okay. Well we established Theo and Paul Suck are about 90 minutes apart, depending on train or driving. So uh, we have a lot of connections. And and, and, um, Chris, you mentioned, you know, selling. Paul is probably one of the biggest eBay sellers of of cameras um, of anybody I know. And uh, we have a a mutual acquaintance. We we all know Kurt Ingham. Um, I've spoken to you about him before. Uh, Chris, you had sold quite a few things from your shop to Kurt. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. No, uh, that's how I first met Kurt, uh, uh, probably about three or four years ago, just before the pandemic. And uh, he just started buying cameras left and right from me on my Etsy shop. And I didn't really know him personally, but in the few times we'd interact uh, before the the sale and then afterwards, uh, found him to be a exceptionally nice uh, person. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I couldn't believe the amount of cameras that he was buying. And I knew he wasn't just buying from me. So uh, whenever I put something on my blog and and would talk about it, I had then put it on Etsy and then I'd have the sale (laughs) to uh, Kurt. So uh, um, what a gentleman and and what a sad thing to hear of his his passing. So myself and another collector were um, charged with helping to, you know, go through his collection because his his wife wasn't able to do it, and my me and and the other person who did this, I did this with, both knew Paul separately, and we both said, well, if we know one person that's going to help get rid of some of this stuff, it's going to be Paul. So some of the camera, the circle that I was speaking of, Chris, some of the cameras you sold, Kurt, have wound up either with me. Some of them have gone to Paul and has been then resold. So if if you happen to go on eBay and see a camera that you've previously sold before and you go, that looks like one I sold before, there's actually a pretty good chance that it is the same one. Well, it, Mike, what happened was funny. Uh, there were in courtesy stuff were two pigeons. Yeah, one of them was mine. Yeah, it was. And, but and the reason I knew that was I was, went to Yashika TLR and uh, went to the pigeon loft and found the pigeon 2A that has the same serial number as the one that's in the picture. Oh, wow. That uh, is credited to you. So that's, uh, I looked at it, I said, God, that serial number looks really familiar. I went to get the camera and it was exactly the same camera. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, part of the collecting fun, and I think we all share that, is um, when it is time to move on from a particular camera, knowing that it's going to someone that isn't, you know, uh, that won't appreciate it. You know, it's nice to know. And in this case, it's nice to know that the cameras that Kurt bought from me, which for the most part were all mint condition and with their original boxes and, and, you know, I'll say it, Kurt paid top dollar for them because they were, you know, kind of rare cameras to find, uh, you know, with their original boxes in great condition. So it's nice through Mike and now through you to know that these cameras are 
have another life. They're going to be in somebody else's cabinet. <laughs> well, I think you probably had this one too. The Yashica Flex S that was uh, like brand new in the box. I mean, literally appears not to have been used at all. I don't I don't remember having sold any of my S's. Um, Paul's the real expert on those. I know Kurt got the, uh, and Mike, you have it now, the A3, the gray Yashica A3 with its original box. Yep, I have it over there somewhere. <laughs> it's definitely a weird circle. And, you know, like you said, one of one of Kurt's wishes is that his cameras not only went to people that appreciated them, but would use them, you know, and as many people as possible. So, you know, we, we had to, you know, there was a lot of things that went into that. We've spoken about it in previous episodes, but, um, you know, some of the digital cameras went to uh, my wife is a social worker and went to underprivileged children you know, who maybe we wanted to encourage them to develop a hobby. So Kurt had a whole bunch of like Panasonic Lumixes, you know, and Nikon cool pixels, you know, nothing particularly collectible. He just had a bunch of them. So we made sure to give those, you know, to them. Um, many different collectors. Theo got a Minolta Super A uh, from the collection that I sent on him. Anthony got a Zeiss Icon 10X, um, you know, and some other stuff too. So we've tried to spread the love and, I think, you know, I, I have to believe, you know, depending on how uh, how you feel about spirituality, but Kurt's up there somewhere smiling down and, and he's happy that his cameras went to a bunch of people who were really going to appreciate him and, um, uh, you know, use them and such like that. So well, he, he did love, he loved Yashica cameras in particular. And, and what you said, Chris is correct. I mean, he, so many of the Yashicas, there were more mint condition Yashicas. Uh, I, I probably had 3,000 cameras, just to give you an idea of wow. what, I, what what volume we're, we're looking at. And out of those roughly 3,000 cameras, the Yashikas were the nicest. There's a, a Yashika 44 gray with the original JCII sticker. Right, right. I mean, it's they were just, he really enjoyed them and uh, appreciated them. And, and, uh, and I'm having a lot of fun with them, too. Yeah, well, I think I can say this. You know, I mentioned my very first uh, 35 millimeter SLR was the TL Electro X, which I actually think is one of the uh, the best looking, most elegant uh, SLR from the late 60s and 70s. It, the uh, Yashica, the metals that they used in the finish on the silver cameras, if uh, the camera was well taken care of, you know, and kept dry and didn't get corrosion, uh, they're some of the prettiest cameras in my collection. And my very first camera from that same base exchange at Patrick was a uh, Nikonis 2, and um, that was my first underwater camera. So my first exposure to 35 millimeter was the Nikonis, which was a heck of a camera to use above the water. <laughs> and so my second one was the uh, Yashica. And then I, uh, I sold that to another sailor friend of mine in Yokohama when I got into the Canon F1 series in uh, 1978. But um, I came back to Yashica uh, partly because um, I found Paul's site. And a very simple question of Paul was, do you have any idea how to uh, decode the serial numbers? And Paul had done extensive work on the TLRs. And um, we started working together on decoding the uh, serial numbers on the SLRs. And then that led to decoding the serial numbers on the rangefinders and uh, being able to read date codes on their brochures and, and instruction booklets. And that's how Paul and I got to know each other was me just asking him, do you have any idea how to read these things? And uh, 
And I think Paul will admit that I may have turned him on to uh, the Pentamatic, and uh, he probably owns a few more uh, Yashica cameras uh, that aren't TLRs than he probably originally thought he'd own. I do. I do. I'll blame you for it, Chris. <laughs> well, I'll blame you for the 50 TLRs that I got sitting around. The- it's it's interesting you mentioned the TL Electro X um, because I've actually been using one recently, uh, Chris. And you're right. They're actually a really well-made camera. I mean, it's heavy. It's got, it's, you know, solid. I've got a black version here. But, you know, the one thing that I really, one of my favorite lenses came with this camera is the actual Yashinon 50 f2. Um, that is an absolutely amazing lens. I use it as much as I can on any of my M42 bodies because it's just such a beautiful lens and the way it renders. Yeah, I've been I've been able to use a lot of my old Yashica lenses on uh, my uh, Fuji, and I have a Fuji X-T2, and, um, you know, with one a photodiox uh, adapter. And so I've had a, a great deal of fun recently of going into the cabinet and pulling out various uh, lenses, even some of my Tomioka lenses that uh, I have now since sold off. But I got a chance to finally experience uh, how great the optics are. But yeah, no, if, if someone grabs a TL Electro X and especially the Chrome models and you have one in your hand that's been well taken care of, I have about four or five that are mint new still. Um it, it is, it, it, like you said, it's heavy, uh, it's solid. I have big hands, so it's easy to grab both sides. The only thing that I would have a complaint why I switched over to the Canon F1 in 78 was, uh, it, you know, it's not a system camera. And, uh, and being in Japan, the, uh, the reps for Canon were very in your face whenever you went into the exchange. And so uh, there wasn't anyone from Yashica there. So uh, when it came time to move on from the Electro X, I looked at the uh, what was out at that time. I think the uh, the FR series had come out, the FR one and two, and they just didn't hold a candle to the to the F one. But um, the only gripe I had was in bright sunlight, you really can't see the little LED arrows. And uh, and and switching over to a match needle system uh, was was much more user friendly. Plus, it took forever to screw the darn lens in. <laughs> so speaking of that, when did they when did they switch over? When did they switch over from M forty two to the CY mount? I think the AX was the last uh, the uh, AX model or the FFT. I'm sorry, the Yashica FFT was the last thirty five millimeter SLR in the M forty two mount, and then they went over. So. Uh, uh, but yeah, it, it became a pain when you were busy out touring around in Japan or just bouncing around to screw in a lens. I don't know how many revolutions it takes, but uh, and then you can mount a Canon with, you know, a couple of fingers and the FD lens, basically the old uh, chrome mount used to just spin itself on. So I was sold then. But as I got older, I started feeling nostal- nostalgia for the old Jashikas. And uh, I use a few now and then, but it, it they're just difficult to use <laughs> you know i've got i've got a couple of the, the late contacts i've got an s2 and an st and i know this is going to be heresy but i have more yashica lenses for that that i enjoy than zeiss lenses you know i've had the like the 51.7 from zeiss and i've got the yashica 51.4 and i'll take that 51.4 pretty much any day of the week over the zeiss and some of those those yashica lenses are just massively underappreciated uh, it's it's extremely high quality glass. Yeah, I, and I attribute that to uh, 
Tamioka or Tomioka, depending on how you pronounce it. But, you know, they didn't make all of Yashica's lenses. There was a period there where uh, Zunao made the lenses for the, uh, the Pentamatic II that came out. But no, it, the Tomioka lenses were, were sharp as anything. And my favorite, I'll throw this in early, my favorite TLR to use is the uh, Yashica Matte EM. And I just find that the meter, my meter still works on mine. And the Yashinon lens is just incredibly sharp. And so the pictures I've gotten from it with, you know, uh, 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 Fujifilm, uh, whether black and white or color has just been stunning. So, you know, the camera itself is is just a box with two two lenses on it, but it's those lenses that really stand out for me. My EM is from uh, 1964 and the meter still works and the lenses and of course everything crystal clear. My favorite uh, Yashica TLR is the D. I like it actually for its simplicity. It's not an automat design. It doesn't have a meter. I find that there's a higher chance of failure the more automatic a TLR is. And the, t- to me, the Yashica D uh, was that the perfect balance of a of not completely primitive camera, but you know you still got to advance it, you know, manually. You know, it, mine is a later version, which I learned from reading your guys' sites. I, it does have the Yashinon, the four element lens, instead of the Yashicor, which is what the earlier ones I believe had. So. That one takes, in my mind, just as razor sharp of images as any Roly that I've ever shot or Minolta Autocord or, or any other the the millions of TLRs that are out there. I wanted to start a little bit back. You know, everybody who's been to my site knows that I, I love history. Uh, but I thought, like, you know, we, we would do real quick summary of sort of where Yashica came from. And and I'd like to, at, at some point, you know, dive into some of the other brands like uh, Nika. Because uh, I think their their story is is pretty fascinating too. But from from you know Paul or Chris, if I get anything wrong, feel free to jump in. But basically, Yashika started out as Yashima Yashima Seiki. Uh, they were for, founded by a man named Yos, Yoshimasa Ushiyama. From from what I could tell, they did exist during World War II. It's not a hundred percent clear exactly what they did, but uh, they they. They don't seem to have predated the war around that time when there was a lot of turmoil in Japan. Uh, resources were were limited, so it's it's very plausible they probably helped make small parts for the war effort. Is that right, Paul? That's basically it. the The area that they that Yoshima was established in, uh, the Lake Sua area, Nagano in Japan, uh, was an industrial area. I mean, they a number of Yoshika's books refer to it as the Switzerland of the East. But the, the big employer or the big factory at the time in that area was the Katasawa uh, factory, which produced water valves for silk reeling factories. Uh, silk reeling was a, was a big industry in that area from the end of the uh, 19th century to the early 20th century. Their water valves, uh, even though uh, Japanese products at the time probably didn't have the best reputation still, but their uh, water valves were world-renowned. During the war, that factory was involved in making munitions. And my understanding is that the two brothers, there's uh, the younger brother, Jizaburu, and then, as you mentioned, uh, Yoshimaza, they were involved as subcontractors making fuses for munitions. So fuses would have involved some sort of clockwork components, probably. A later Yashika document refers to, I, I think that was produced in uh, about 1975 or something like that. Chris might correct me later. But that referred to um, making parts for clock uh, for electric clocks. 
And that story appears in a number of uh, places in various things like Camera Wiki and whatever. And I'm not sure which came first, the claim in that um, uh, in that brochure or is picked up on stories that have been floating around. But from what I can make out, early Yashika documents suggest that they were involved in uh, making uh, testing electrical testing equipment as well and optical testing equipment. And perhaps it's that optical testing and, and some of that uh, work with uh, the clockwork bits and pieces got them into camera making. So we don't really know how they got into camera making. The first we know is that in 1953, uh, well, there was an ad in March 1953 for a Pigeon Flex camera. Um, now, that camera doesn't look, I've, I've got one here, I just lean down and get it. Uh, that's a Pigeon Flex camera. You see it okay. Um, nothing very special about it, like so many other Japanese uh, TLRs of the day, basically a rolly copy without the uh, bay one mounts and whatever else, a bit more basic, but the build and when you take the covers off, really look like they could have come out of the rolly factory. So that's that's the first Yoshima-made Pigeon Flex. Uh, a number of companies, I mean, uh, their next model was the Yoshima Flex, which they named after themselves. But if I can digress for a moment, there's a number of companies that were involved in making Pigeon Flexes. So there's the first March ad in 1953, which doesn't look anything like this camera. It's got different features. It also is a Rolly clone. Uh, 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 sorry, I said Rolly Flex before. I meant Rolly Cord. It's a Rolly Cord uh, uh, clone. The other cameras are a bit like that, but they're all quite different in, in some of their little trim details. When Yoshima stopped making the Pigeon Flex, uh, a company called Shinano uh, made the next model, which was the... Uh, 1A, I think, uh, Pigeon Flex 1A. Now, they're the only two companies that have been known to make Pigeon Flexes, uh, Yoshima and Shinano. It's my thinking that the following cameras, which were the Pigeon Flex 1, the uh, Pigeon Flex uh, 1B and the Pigeon Flex 1C, were all made by a company called Alpha Optical Company, which made um, uh, Cosmoflex cameras as well. That's Nobody's actually confirmed that, but the, the, the features on the cameras were almost identical between the uh, Pigeon Flexes and, and, those, uh, and the other ones. Coming after that, I mean, people, there's plenty of those, well, when I say plenty, the cameras are rare, they're rare but you, you do find them around the place. But then came another Pigeon Flex model, still nothing to do with Yoshima, but I thought I'd just show it because it is the only one I have ever seen and it's quite an amazing Pigeon Flex, which is this one here. Now, what makes it amazing is that it's Pigeon Flexes are all very basic cameras, but this one has got auto-stop winding. You can see the little window for the counter above the uh, uh, focusing knob. That's basically it. It looks comparable to one of the earlier Minolta Flexes. Yeah. Now, it's still it's still knob wind, but it's starting to show some of the more advanced features that later TLRs would have. That's right. And yeah, this this one with this this one was actually made by Tokiwa Seiki. Seiki. Now, Tokiwa Seiki is also the maker of the first uh, Japanese SLR with a Pentaflex uh, prism. Not the Penta prism. What am I saying? The mirror. The the uh, SLR with the mirror. Is, the answer. Yeah, with a, with a, a Penta mirror. So the Penta mirror. They were the they that came out before. The Asahi um, Pentax um, with the prism. So they had a Penta mirror before the, the prism. So that's just a little bit of side history. But then getting back to Yoshima, the, their first camera was the Yoshima Flex, which is one of those. And 
most people are seeing pictures of them, a fairly basic standard rolly cord type like camera, nothing very special about it, but it is the, their first own brand camera and it's a development of the uh, Pigeon Flex. One thing, one thing that I noticed, you know, following the, the entire trajectory of the Japanese camera industry is incredibly confusing, especially in the 50s when there was like this mad rush to produce as much stuff as possible. And one thing you saw a lot was sometimes the distributors had more power than the manufacturers did, and they would usually have a name. So I, I read somewhere that there was a distributor called Endo Shashin who owned the rights to the word pigeon. Yeah. And I think that's Yashika probably, like you had said, was busy making clock parts. They were just making things for other people. Their original goal, I don't think necessarily was to become a camera maker. They just found themselves doing that and seemed to have paired up with the distributor uh, who also was selling pigeon cameras by Shinano. I'm not sure I totally agree with that because uh, there is mention of Yoshi Maza having um, uh, identified cameras as something that he wanted to get into. And Shinano, uh, sorry, uh, Endo, um, Endo Photographic Supplies were a distributor, as you said, and owned the pigeon name. But most of the cameras that they've sold, and I've identified three different makers, Yoshima, Shinano, well, there's four actually, Alpha Optical Company and uh, uh, Tokiwa Seiki. There's four different companies. Now, those companies have all got camera models which look like the pigeon flexes that were being sold. So they're just rebrands. So I don't think that Yoshima would have set up to produce cameras. It would have cost too much. I mean, they were going to produce a camera anyway is my thinking. And they have probably partnered, they probably looked for somebody to distribute and they've gone to perhaps, I don't know how it might have worked, but they've gone looking for somebody that would be able to sell the camera they make. And uh, Endo have probably said, yeah, stick the Pigeon Flex name on it and we'll sell it for you. Gotcha. So then they started producing things kind of more on their own. They they had the, the Yashima Flex like you showed there um, and they, they kind of expanded from that point, right? They did. Uh, but before I move on from that, that, this, this is a Yashima Flex, which is also virtually unseen, quite unusual, because as you can see, the, uh, the name is in block letters instead of the, the normal Yashima Flex text, and it's halfway between the Pigeon Flex and the Yashima Flex. Nothing special about it. It's just the ve- this is the very first version. The one I showed you is the one that you see everywhere, or you see in books and pictures and whatever. This is the one that actually came after the Pigeon Flex. That's interesting because it's the the actual Yashima name. If I look at the original, I've got an original Pigeon Flex here. Yeah, the the text is the same as where it says Pigeon Flex and then Yashima Seiki under underneath it. So they've obviously kept that same font, and then moved, it was later when they moved to the lower case. That's right. That's it. Yeah, but that 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 name under it, which Mike just asked me about, you know, they expanded and where they went from there. In nineteen fifty four, they released the Yashika Flex S, which is that particular one there. And it's it's an earlier version of what you showed before, that, or somebody showed before. Now, this one is interesting. It's one of the first, it's not the earliest version. The earliest versions still have black trim around the, the lens board, but this is a very early version and almost unseen again. It also still has the Yashima uh, Kogaku Seiki Company Limited name on the, on the, uh, on the flap. Yeah, yeah. So that's also quite unusual because uh, uh, there's very small numbers of that before they went to a different flat with a serial number on it, et cetera. 
But the importance of the Yashika Flex S was, was, and the thing that got got them well known and uh, uh, reported on was the fact that it was the first TLR with a uh, built-in selenium cell exposure meter. It's not coupled at all, but it's the, it's the first one anywhere. Now, Yashika were never really known for, for great innovation in their cameras. Their, their TLRs are sort of more basic versions of Rollies and very similar to any others that were made in Japan at the time. There's nothing really special about them, but this, this, this stood out. This is one of the cameras and one of the innovations that they made. And it's the camera that got them going that um, really uh, brought them to the forefront of rather than just being another TLR maker, they became noticed. Um, this was followed on by things like the Yashika Flex C and uh, a bunch of other cameras until the Yashika Mat. You know, the Yashika Mat was probably one of their most popular models ever. Uh, very usable, operated very much like a Rolly Flex, but the gears inside the drivetrain are nothing like the, the quality of the gears inside a um, uh, inside of a Rolly Flex, for instance. And but for for amateur use, it was more than enough. I mean, the, the thing about Yashikas has always been quality at a, at a really good price. They got their profits from um, from volume rather than from high prices and short supply. They talk about it in some of their documentation. They are a company that tried to provide the right color, the right quality at the right price. And that is what got their numbers going. I think by 1960, they claimed that they were the, one of the biggest camera companies in Japan by sales. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's in their documentation. Do you know about what time or what year-ish would it have been common to see Yashica cameras in the United States or Europe? There's evidence of, there are some reviews that I've seen that are early and I've seen some evidence, but the Yashica, Yashica A, Yashica C and Yashica LM, which is basically Yashica C with a, a meter on it, a knob wind um, uh, Yashica, they were all released in 1956. And that seems to be when the export marketing push really started. There are English uh, manuals dating back to uh, Yashika Flex S days. So some of them would have been sold. Some of them were sold in, um, advertised actually in, in Sweden back in uh, at the end of 54, beginning of 55. But uh, 1956 is when the export push started. But it wasn't only in the US, it, was, it seems to have been uh, Europe as well at the same time. Yeah. Probably around about October, November 1956. And then they followed it up in uh, April 1957 with the uh, Yashika mat. So around 56, 57, Yashima starts getting better distribution. In researching so many different Japanese camera companies, it seems like they 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 lived and died on whether or not they could sell their their cameras out west. Some companies who who didn't have good distribution just stopped existing. So they're doing well. By 57, though, you have. The SLR, the 35 millimeter SLRs are starting to gain traction. Less and less people are are looking for roll film. Uh, while Yashima is still doing very well making these TLRs, they didn't have a very diverse portfolio, right? They pretty much only made TLRs, right? That's that's it. Only TLRs until 57. It, it stands to reason that management at Yashima was like, wait a minute, we need to start looking into other kinds of cameras. So how did that happen? Well, we, we don't really know how it happened. 
But the first camera that they came out with, apart from uh, after the, the TLRs, was a, the Yashica 8 movie camera. Uh, that was in 1957. It was seems to be mainly have been a Japanese-only release at that stage. It was uh, released worldwide, I believe, after, well, certainly 1958, uh, in about November 1958, uh, and it was re- released as uh, various models. It was released as the 8T, the 8T2 and the 8S. But the earlier ones from 1957 and beginning of 1958 were just Yashica 8, didn't matter how many lenses they had. So that was the, that was the first uh, step. The second step was the release of a 35mm uh, camera in 1958. We figure around about, I think around about April, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but certainly early 1958. And quite interestingly, uh, the, the Yashica mat had been released in 1957, in April 1957, um, production seems to be running at quite a uh, high level until the end of 1957. And then for the first six months of 1958, there were no Yashica mats made. Now, when the Yashica mat was released, it had uh, uh, Lumex lenses. When it restarted uh, production in um, around about June 1958, it was uh, fitted with the well-known Yashinon lenses. Uh, but in that six-month period, the uh, uh, Yashica 8 cameras and the Yashica 35s that were released, some of them actually had a different name lens. Well, it's Yashinon without the H, and uh, that's Yazinon, I suppose. I don't know how to pronounce it. I suppose it's Yazinon. I think that's relatively clear on, on this Yashica 35 or Yazinon or whatever. But the Yashica 35 itself was a beautiful little camera. It's very well made. One of the questions I had asked you a long time ago in regards to the serial numbers, yes. the serial numbers on those are a mess, right? Yeah, no, yeah, they, they're not as, there's a few things that I don't understand. They do follow some of the other uh, uh, numbering systems that Yashica use, uh, but there are a couple that I don't really understand. So the Yashica 35 was their first 35mm camera. That's right. And their second, and their second behind the Yashica 8 that wasn't a TLR. That's right. This is still, I mean, it's. A, it, I agree with you. This is a very solidly built camera. Uh, it does very vaguely resemble a Nikon rangefinder, a Contax. It kind of has a, a a somewhat similar arrangement of the viewfinder windows. It's a fixed lens. Yeah. You can get it. Most of them have the 2.8 lens, but some have the 1.9, which is what That's it is. That's right, yeah. But it is still a fixed lens. But so talk to me about, let's, let's transition a little bit into Nikka, because um, Nikka is actually an older company. Just before we do that, uh, Mike, I think we should introduce some of the callers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we hit the ground running on this one. So <laughs> they've been sitting here patiently. First of all, we've got uh, Brian, uh, is it McDonough? Is that the right way to pronounce it? Uh, McDonald. McDonald. Welcome, Brian. You're calling from Ireland, so it's like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning there. Uh, 10 to 1. 10 to 1. Okay, I got my timing wrong there. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm just I'm here to learn about Yashica and yeah I, I've convinced myself I do like the idea of a TLR where I I hadn't before and the only TLR I have is a Lomo Universal 166 and I've been shooting some rolls through it recently and it's convinced me that maybe I might like a TLR if there was a good one and I have my eye on the Yashicas as maybe a middle of the road solution. Not a bad choice. Definitely not a bad choice. I think that Mike was uh, right before that uh, the simpler cameras can be more reliable, like the Yashica D or 
uh, even the Yashica 635, which takes um, a 35mm kit, so you can run 35mm film through it too. If you're buying a medium format camera, these days I wouldn't think that being a selling point, uh, but there's no reason why you can't use a 635 just like a Yashica D. They're basically the same camera anyway with a few extra little bits. The, uh, the Yashinon lenses are certainly the best lenses, but they're, they're rare on both the uh, Yashica D and the Yashica 635. They were only introduced in the last year or two of their manufacturer, uh, around about 70 or 71, I can't remember off the top of my head. So they're, they're, they're quite hard to come by uh, and, and they're also expensive. The, the free element lenses are still very good for being free element lenses in, in a, a medium format type camera they're not as big a disadvantage as you might think. They perform quite well. People that use both Yashinon and Yashikor lenses don't see a lot of difference uh, in, in some of the aspects. The Yashinons are certainly sharper, wide open, on the edges uh, when you're shooting wide open. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but in the centre, they're not a big difference. If you go to a Crankwine model, uh, Crankwine can be very reliable, the Yashika models, but they're certainly not robust like um, some crank wine models. I'd say that probably uh, uh, a Minolta autocord and, of, of, of course, uh, the Rolly flexes and things like that, they, they would be probably more reliable. But if it hasn't been abused or, or mistreated, the Yashica Mat uh, is an excellent camera when they work properly, uh, as are the later ones uh, going anywhere from Yashica 24 or uh, the 12, 124, 124G, uh, Mat 124G, they're all great cameras if, if they're in good condition. Didn't they keep making the 124 until like the 80s? Uh, 87, I think. Uh, I think that uh, Kaiseira was uh, bought out Yashika and I think in 83 finally. Uh, and I think the production continued till 87, if I remember. So that's a huge advantage if you're looking for a camera that's um, not quite as old. You can find the 124Gs as, you know... Don't get me wrong; it's still forty years old, but less ancient. That's that's a, those are great models too, but they they tend to fetch a little bit higher prices. The one twenty four Gs they do fetch higher prices. They do have some advantages with the meter, the gold contacts, and whatever. There's there's a few minor differences. Uh, some say they're built cheaper, but there are the, the key things that made them. Uh, there are key things involved that make them better than the their predecessor, uh, like the one two four. Or, or, the, or the Yashica 12 or 24. One thing with the Yashinon lenses, they're four element types with a cemented rear uh, group. They're more susceptible to um, uh, fungus and mould than, um, than the Yashikors. Generally, uh, Yashikors seem to suffer from uh, mould uh, not very much, whereas uh, quite a few of the um, Yashinons do. So that's something to keep in mind as well. If you don't, if, if, depending on where you're buying from. If you can see the camera, that's one thing. But if you're buying from a reputable seller like Chris, for instance, who will refund your money if he makes a mistake, um, that, that's a safe buy. But if you're buying off eBay and you can't see the uh, can't see the lens and you don't know much about the seller, then it's a risk, uh, and that's going to be factored in. Absolutely. Uh, we also have Mina. Welcome back, Mina. So we have three Australians now on the show. We're taking over. Slow takeover. <laughs> And we have Kyle. Kyle, welcome, Kyle. You've been sitting there patiently this whole time. Thanks for letting, letting me in. Uh, I'm a Chinese guy who's living in Japan right now, so as you can see. This... You're in Japan? 
the uh, Prairie Lounge downstairs. Yeah, I'm in Japan right now. So you're our first J- Japan caller. Yay! All right, we broke through. Nice to see you guys. Yes, thank you for coming. Do you do you collect uh, Yashica or, or is that a area of entry? No, I'm a uh, Kyocera context collector. So I got all the um, SRs, but not a uh, single Yashica. So. I got a nice AX here for you to look at. Oh, nice AX and the uh, 85 mil, right? Yes, the 8514. Awesome lens. All right, so uh, sorry for taking so long to introduce our, our callers. Uh, we definitely hit the ground running here. But we kind of left off, sort of, we're in the late 50s. Yashica's already made their fixed lens 35 uh, range finder, but they they wanted to go one step beyond that too. So the, 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 the easy version of the story is Nika had existed since the around 1940. They originally started as a service center for Canon. So Canon then was called Seiki Kogaku. Uh, Nika was originally called Kogaku Seiki, and their first product was the, the Nippon which was uh, an actual Leica copy, whereas Canon's original camera, although technically considered a Leica copy, did not use the Leica thread mount. It had a, a, a Nippon Kugaku design similar to contacts lens mount. It was, it was a much different camera than the original Leica was, but Nika's very first camera was almost an exact Leica copy. It was simpler, easier to make. Stories go that they made some for the Japanese military, but very few. Wartime Nikka cameras are incredibly difficult to find, but they do exist. I know Iris been on the show. He's got a couple really rare Nippon cameras. Nippon eventually changed to, I think, Nikka Camera Works. Then they were just Nikka, right? Am I, am I butchering that or am I doing okay? No, that's pretty, that's, that's close to it. Okay. So throughout the 50s, Nikka kind of built up a little bit of a positive reputation as a quality maker of Leica copies. They didn't stray too far from the original formula, but they did make some improvements. You can get some Nikas with lever wines. Uh, they Their biggest success was Sears Roebuck and Company in the United States was a major department store chain that rebranded uh, Nikas as tower cameras. So for those of you in the United States, if you find a tower like a copy, that's actually a Nikka. And Theo, since I love bringing up this camera, uh, Theo absolutely wants a Snyder 35, <laughs> which was an Australian market Nikka, right? I was going to ask about that. <laughs> we'll be fight. We'll be fighting over that one. Yeah, I think it'll be a short fight considering the price I'll probably go for. <laughs> but I've heard from multiple people who work on. Uh, camera repair that the Nikas were very well built. They uh, come came very very close, maybe even equaled the build quality of the of the original German Leica. So, um, for somebody looking to get into that style of camera, and for whatever reason, just either doesn't want a genuine Leica or can't afford one, you can still find Nikas still. I think for a reasonable price, I, I don't see them selling for quite as high as some of the, the German cameras were. And I don't want to spend too much time, but Leotax, I know you have um, interest in that too, Paul. Leotax is another great Japanese brand that made fairly good quality Leica copies, right? I mean, would you would you say Leotax and Nikka were pretty close in quality? I think they're uh, pretty close. I think Nikka are probably ahead of Leotax in quality, uh, particularly up until about the mid 1950s, around about 1954. Until that time, I'd say Nikka was definitely cameras earlier in about 1954. Nikka quality is certainly much higher than Leotax 
that when Leotax released their first uh, die-cast body, which was the uh, Leotax F, that was pretty much on the money in terms of uh, quality. I still think that Nika were probably better. I think that uh, some of the, um, the the chrome and the finishing uh, seem to be better on the Nika. They seem to have lasted better in that uh, in the intervening uh, 50 or 60 years, but there's it, it, probably not a lot in it. I've got each of those, but uh, I've got the Nika 3S, I believe it is, actually, and it's, it's actually a really nice camera. I unfortunately damaged the shutter on it, so I've got to get it repaired. But uh, and and that was user error. But it's 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 a really nice camera. They are. Chris uh, Chris has had several, uh, uh, or still has a three S, I think. Yes, I have that Nika. It's it's one of my favorite rangefinders. And I was going to throw. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correct here in the United States, Mister Yoxin Yi uh, Y O X I N last name Y E. Uh, he, he repairs uh, like a cameras. That's his primary repair. But he's repaired quite a few of my Nikas, and he does a bang-up job on them. And uh, uh, next to repairing Leicas, he enjoys the Nika camera. And he's told me in the past that the build quality on some of them that I've sent him for repair are actually better than the same model year uh, Leicas. You know, there's from someone who who has probably done hundreds of uh, repairs and very complicated repairs on Leicas, he's commented to me that the Nika cameras are actually better than than the same Leicas. And I think Paul will agree with me that some of the later uh, Nika cameras uh, right up until the YF were pretty ahead of their time. And I, and I think, as someone mentioned, it, if you're looking to get a 35 millimeter rangefinder from the 50s, don't overlook Nika because they're going to be 100 less than a Leica. But, um, Nika, I think, actually was doing better than Leica during the same period in the 50s. Uh, and then I'll throw in something here going back just a second is uh, for the gentleman in Ireland that's looking to get into medium format. Uh, the first medium format camera that I shot of a TLR was a Yashica A. And we're going back about 10 years now. And how I found it on eBay is I just went searching for the best camera that I could afford. And back then, a mint Yashica A, uh, and I really mean mint, uh, was like $40, $50. And uh, taking a look on eBay just a little while ago, the prices have gone up. But if you're if you're looking to try medium format photography and you want to try Yashica, don't shy away from a well-kept Model A. They're as simple as falling out of bed. Um, as Paul alluded to, the lenses don't seem to have as much trouble as the later Yashinons. And I've taken the, the hood off and, and changed out the mirrors. I've taken the uh, the viewing lens out and cleaned the, the front and rear elements. Uh, uh, you can field strip one and, and be all thumbs and get one nice and clean and shiny. And you just turn that crank and, and away you go. And, and it produces images that, you know, are as good, in my opinion, as what you'll find in the later 124G that you're going to spend three, four, five hundred dollars for. I mean, I agree entirely with what Chris has said. The the Yashica A, uh, the early ones came with Yashima lenses. Now, I don't really know how much difference there is between a Yashima and a Yashikor, but certainly the Yashikor lenses are the same as those that appeared in the, uh, the Yashica D and the uh, the, the um, um, Yashica 635. So the lenses are, as, if you if you get one with Yashikor lenses, 
you can be assured that you're not giving up anything in lens quality. The only thing you're giving up is the convenience of those thumb wheels, which is another complication, and some uh, shutter speeds. You're, you're losing out at the uh, on the slow shutter speeds. But other than the slow, that other than that, it's as good as a D or a six three five. Uh, and I agree with Chris. It's a great camera. Uh, repairs are simple. For most repairs, you don't have to actually remove the leatherette uh, for uh, a Yashica D or a 635 or any of those sorts of models. The leatherette has to come off and invariably you, you're up for replacing it. You can't get it off in one piece or a lot of models, certainly you can't get it off in one piece. So, yeah, I, I second that. Absolutely. And I, and I might add about a, a plug for uh, the Yashica A once again is um, shutter speeds were a big deal in the 50s and 60s because films were slow. And nowadays you can load your A up with some really nice Fuji Color 400 and, you know, you don't need those, uh, you know, that full range of, uh, you know, uh, what back in the 50s, what 50 ASA film was considered fast. So, you know, you're, you got 400 on a sunny day, you know, you're going to be shooting 125 to 250 all the time anyway so uh anyway just this is for people just getting into tlrs don't don't look for all the levers and the gizmos because uh take it from me i've had my share of tlrs from yashica that the uh the uh self-timer lever was tripped the wrong way or the crank was turned when the <laughs> the reel wasn't in the camera properly there's just too many things that can go wrong and so if you're just getting into it the film is expensive enough don't don't tack on you know 150 or 200 dollar tlr when you can get a mint condition one we'll say around 100 dollars it's going to have clean lenses and is going to work and it, it and it like i said fall out of bed easy just turn the crank you know and and snap the shutter just moving on with nika my favorite model would be the ones that have both the lever wind, and I don't have it in front of me, but some of them even have an M3 style opening in the back that that is hinged. So for anybody who isn't a fan of bottom loaders that struggle with that, some of these are really nice to have because you can just, I mean, you still have to load it through the bottom, but you could open open the back of it and that just makes it a whole lot easier to get the film attached properly. The, the first one of those was the... Um, uh, the, the Type 5, the Nikko Type 5, and it had a side opening flap. Very similar to the uh, top opening flap, flap, like also on the Leica M3, uh, sideways and knob wind. Now, they certainly improve uh, film loading, but the question arises, how much do they improve film loading? <laughs> See, for me, I've not... I don't have a problem with bottom loaders. I mean, once you've done it a couple times, loading a Leica to me isn't hard. A lot, a lot of people do complain about it. If I have a door, I'm going to use it, but I've never felt that the lack of a door makes the camera unusable, but it is nice to have. I guess, I guess there's a belief that by having a door introduces more areas in which light can leak in there. And not that I've shot my Nick as all that often, but I don't ever recall having a problem with light leaks due to the door. It's a light trap. There's no one, uh, there's no foam or, or cord. It's just a light trap. It works very well, so there's nothing to wear out. The only thing, the only thing with that style is that you do get uh, maybe some dust ingress because it's not dust proof. One quick story. Um, he's not here, but Bob Rodoloni is our Nikon uh, guru who comes in a lot of episodes, and he told me a story. Nika also very commonly used Nippon Kugaku lenses. You'll you'll often find Nika cameras with Nikkor lenses. 
usually the F2. There were a couple we could get with the F14. But he told me about a lens. This is the Nikkor 50 millimeter or five centimeter F35. This is the non-collapsible version. So uh, Nippon Kugaku made collapsible versions of this lens, a, a ton of them. But then they made a small number of the rigid body That's ones. Right. Yeah. And they made they made it specifically for Nikka. Is that is that right? I don't that that I don't know. That that's something I'd have to. But I wouldn't be surprised because the Nikkor lenses were I mean a 50mm lens tends to be used they're not something people buy as accessories. They tend to come with cameras. And the only the only two um, uh, camera makes that used Nikkor lenses as their standard lenses were uh, Nikka, uh, Nikka and Melcon. Now Melcon and Nikka shared a uh, distributor, the same distributor, who also happened to be the distributor for Nikon for Leica mount lenses, not not for their other lenses, just for the Leica mount lenses. So it's probably their distributor that uh, organised it rather than perhaps uh, Nikka directly. In fact, sometimes I think Nikka, Nikka didn't do much other than make cameras. Most of that, anything to do with lenses and that seemed to, and accessories seemed to be left to, uh, I don't even know how you pronounce it, Hinoma, uh, you say it, Chris. <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you have a go. Hino uh, Marayu, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, yeah. But he, he told me that this this was the, the, the kit lens on the Nikka 33, and it's a, it's a four-element Tessar. It's only an F3.5 lens, so it's plausible that people, you know, people get real excited about F2s and super fast lenses, but this F3.5 is like razor sharp. This is a sharp lens, and, and one last fact that Robert told me, then I'll move on, is that this was one of the only lenses that Nikka made only in screw mount. They never produced this lens for their own rangefinders. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm saying. It would have been either. It would have been, uh, uh, I mean, it might have been used there for Melcon too. I, I'd have to go and look it up. Yeah, but they, they Nika and Melcon were the two. So their, their distributor uh, it probably arranged it. But the, the glass in it, to my understanding, is identical to the collapsible 3.5. It is, yeah. 50. Uh, there's no difference in that. It was the standard. It was the standard lens in, in the sense that it was one of the three that you could buy with the models usually. Well, let's let's move on. Let's get back to Yashica. You know, so Nikka, great cameras. Whether you get the tower branded versions, uh, an actual Nikka, or for for you in Australia, if you can find the Snyder <laughs> thirty five, no matter no matter what names on it, if it's a Nikka produced camera, it's it's very good. You can get some with new features you can't find on on like a, And I know I said to move on, but one of my favorite features, I'm sorry about Nikka's. Uh, an improvement in my mind, it's small, but it's an ergonomic improvement, is I like how the shutter release is towards the front of the body rather than in the back, like an actual Leica is. And I, I find that when I hold these cameras, my finger naturally falls on the shutter release when it's towards the front of the camera versus the back. Like if you actually were to hold this side by side with a Leica, the shutter release is in a different spot. So Yashica, or I'm sorry, there's still Yashima at the time. They want to get into making more 35mm cameras. They probably wanted to get into SLRs, but they had no experience with making SLRs, especially not focal plane shutters, right? So Nika is struggling because like Yashima, they have a very limited portfolio too. You know, Nikka only made Leica copies. They didn't make their own lenses. They didn't make any other kind of camera, but they knew how to make a focal plane shutter, right? Am I, am I setting that up correctly? Absolutely. Well, 
Yushika was uh, sorry, Nika was struggling uh, in uh, probably from the probably already in 1957. Uh, they weren't really competing with Leica. Uh, I mean, the, the Japanese companies uh, by the mid 50s were competing with companies like Canon. Now. A lot of the features that were introduced by Nikka towards the end, things like the uh, the better uh, um, better viewfinder, rangefinder, single window on the uh, uh, Nikka 3L, the last one they made in 1958, things like uh, the lever wind, uh, an opening flap, uh, which is not quite an opening back, but it's still, they were driven by competing with uh, Canon, but they were quite a long way behind Canon. There was only a relatively small company. A company that doesn't make its own lenses is giving up at least half their possible revenue, even if they made a similar number of cameras, which they didn't. So financial struggles started, and by 1958, they were ready to go bankrupt. Now, the story is that Yashika bought them just before they went bankrupt, and that was... I can't remember exactly, June, something like that, June 1958 is a claim, something, May, May, June, I can't remember. But anyway, certainly in the first half of 1958, Yashika stepped in and bought Nikka just before they went bankrupt. And that gave them access to um, their uh, uh, technology for the um, for the shutter. Um, they already knew how to build probably the rest of the camera, uh, which was their 35 um Millimeter, the Yashica 35 uh, probably had more similarities to their uh, to the Pentamatic uh, than the Nikka in some ways, apart from that, the shutter. And it came together then for the uh, Pentamatic in released at the beginning, very beginning of 1960. And that's it, uh, which, which is an interesting camera. Chris feels a lot more, uh, a lot more strongly about them than I do. <laughs> Um, I think that they're a uh, they're an unfortunate mix in that uh, Yashika seemed to want to build, or some people in Yashika wanted to build a, a top notch camera, but uh, the bean counters somewhere along the line got involved, and it was produced as a um, more budget camera, and they've cut some things out of it which are really strange. It has the bayonet mounts, which is typically the mirror is stuck up on that one, is it? Stuck up. Yeah, it is. It's that, that is very, very typical of uh, uh, pessimatics these days. And, and and I believe it's probably more a lubrication problem than anything else. Uh, also found on some of the early M42s. It's got a man. It's It's got a manually resetting exposure counter. It does go up to one one thousand. I hate that counter. It is the most vulnerable thing. I've never, I've never actually shot with a pentamatic, but I've got a number of examples. It is so easy to move. Now that the idea for that was originally originally came from uh, Canon, I think, because Canon introduced uh, that type of counter on there uh, with the uh, 1956 Canon VT and then the... Uh, the Didn't some Leotaxes have a counter like this on the side? And and also Leotax, Leotax as well. Leotax, uh, I'm sure, copied the idea from uh, Canon. The Canon one was much better positioned, like it's much harder to move. This one is very easy to uh, knock. One thing that, that is kind of cool about this camera, though, and I agree with you, this is clearly a, a more budget model, but it does have an accessory shoe. It does. Uh, permanently affixed to the camera, whereas back then, most accessory shoes were still a clip-on that would mount to the eyepiece. But this has an accessory shoe over the rewind knob, so you can't rewind film with a flash or anything clicked, uh, connected to the mount, but there's a little lever that when you push it, but it pops up. It's a very complex system. So it would be, they were saving money on not having an automatic frame counter. 
whereas the 1958 Yashica 35 already had an automatic frame counter. They knew how to make one. They were using it. They decided to take it off. And yes, they produced this, uh, the accessory shoe with that uh, rewind system, which obviously added dollars to the thing because it is complicated and there's knobs and levers and whatever else. You had said something at the top of the show that I, I didn't know, and I wanted to ask you real quick. You said some of the pentamatic lenses were made by Zuno. That's Chris said. Uh, Chris said that I did. Before Chris goes on, I, I'll let Chris explain. I will let Chris explain it. But I agree that the pentamatic two lens, uh, the standard lens for the pentamatic two, is not made by the same company. It's made by uh, as as the lens on your camera, Mike. And I also agree with Chris that it's most likely Zuno. But whether uh, it's it's almost impossible to confirm. Yeah, because it doesn't actually say Zuno. No, like, no. It doesn't say Tomioka. They all just say Yashika, right? Chris, you, 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 you tell him why, Chris. During that time period, if you uh, look at your Pentamatic and you look up a Zuno a SLR, the, the only one they made, you can see all sorts of heritage there. And, and you know, I think of the area around where the Yashika factory was uh, they referred to it as a, what was it, the Switzerland of the Orient. But I, I think of it, I think of it as being almost like, uh, you know, out uh, Silicon Valley of the day to where, you know, uh, after work, these engineers and designers would all end up in the same little uh, bar and they probably traded ideas back and forth, just like uh, they do out in Silicon Valley. And you can see that a lot of what the Yashica Pentamatic ended up being produced looks an awful lot like that zoo now. So there was a connection uh, behind the scenes, if you will, between Yashica and Zunau because Zunau made their cinematic lenses for some of the early uh, Yashica eight uh, millimeter cameras that, that say Zunau on it. So we know that it, they weren't foreign to each other. There was uh, activity going on between the two companies uh, and stuff, and then eventually Yashica put their own name on the lenses that Zunau were making for their eight millimeter cameras. Uh, the other thing is the Nika uh, engineers. Um, when, however, Yashica acquired it, whether they bought them outright or they just merged, or uh, you know, there may have even been a big debt owed to Yashica, and they said, "Here, take us." But that's how the Pentamatic came about. Is is and uh, Paul has the brochure, uh, the Japanese language brochure that clearly states in black and white that the Nika engineers in collaboration with Yashica uh, designed the Pentamatic. And they were doing that in late 1958, uh, right after the acquisition of uh, uh, Nika, all the way up through the uh, the release of the Pentamatic. So if you're holding a Pentamatic, you are holding something that uh, Nika helped to design. And of course, we know they were a big player in the shutter. But like I said, there's a lot of Zunau in there. And then as Paul said, the Pentamatic 2, the second model, uh, I've taken those lenses apart. And as Paul stated, the, the lens, the F1.7 lens on the Pentamatic 2 is nowhere near the same lens as that's on the Pentamatic 1. And we feel the Pentamatic 1 lens is made by uh, Tomioka. And uh, all, all things point to me, uh, just from the design of the lens and the way it operates, that Zunau made it for them. And here's the other little bit of evidence is when the Pentamatic 2 went out of production, I believe it was January of 1961, that's the same time Zunau disappeared. And so Yashica, when they came out with the Pentamatic uh, S, 
the follow-on model went back to the original lens by Tomioka. So I think there's more than just a casual connection between Zunao and Yashica, uh, and it's all contained in that very exciting pentamatic that hardly ever were. Well, and and then last, the last thing I'll say about this too is I've handled a ton of Yashinan lenses and and every mount, every you know camera system they've made, and this. Uh, Auto Yashinan on my original Pentamatic is the only one I've ever come across where the helicoid is completely seized. Like I can't move it at all. So I, I don't, I, I know that doesn't guarantee it was made by somebody else, but there's something different about the construction of this lens that's different from any other Yashinan. Um, and while that certainly doesn't suggest that it was made by Zuno at all, it could have been made by some fourth company we don't even know, but I've never, ever come across a Yashinan that is completely seized like this one is. Uh, can I just say something, Chris? The, that Yashin, that there, Chris and I both think that Tommy Oka made the one on the Pentamatic. The, the one, the one point, Agreed. the 1.8, that's the 1.8 lens. Yes, 5.5 centimeter, 1.8. Now, there's a couple of things about that. Now, that probably was the first SLR lens made by Tommy Oka. There is no evidence that Tommy Oka made SLR lenses for anyone else. So they may have got something wrong, number one. Uh, the other thing is that it follows the numbering, the numbering system on that and the style of text on the, on the dress ring on the front all follow the same as other Yashinon lenses that we know are made by Tommy Oka. If you have a look at the 1.8, its numbering system is completely different. Doesn't follow any Yashica. Uh, uh, sorry, well, I said 1.8. On the one on the 1.7, the one the later 1.7, the 1.7 is a completely different style. The numbering is different, and and the text style is different. Um, and we've also compared it to. Uh, this, I, I don't want to go chasing rabbits here, but there's also the uh, Yashica. Was it the the YL? Uh, camera, 35 millimeter camera. Uh, after the Yashica 35 came the uh, uh, the YK and then the YL. Now the YL has got four lenses: a 2.8, uh, a 1.9, and two 1.8 lenses. Now the two 1.8 lenses are also different to each other, and you will find on Japanese blog sites claims by people that some of the lenses were made by Zuno. And when you compare the two 1.8 lenses, the text on the front and the numbering system is identical to what it is on the Pentax 2 1.7 lens. So it would seem likely that the company that made the uh, one of the 1.8 lenses is also the same company that made the uh, uh, the one on the, uh, the on the other camera. But it's all circumstantial. There's no proof. We can't say for certain there was Zuno. Chris feels more strongly than I do. I do feel strongly, though, that uh, it is definitely both cameras, the YK and the Pentamatic 2, have different lenses than the run-of-the-mill Yashica lenses. So the, the Pentamatics had the, the bayonet mount, and you had touched upon, Paul, that they maybe missed a few features they should have included. 1960 was after Minolta, after Canon, after Nikon, after Miranda, after Topcon. They did beat Konica, they did beat Olympus, but it, it seems as though perhaps it was fairly clear from the beginning that it wasn't going to be a hot commodity because they quickly pivoted to screw mounts. So um, I have here a Penta J, right? Yeah. So the Penta J is a is an M42, 
And this was made at the same time as the Pentamatic 2. So this was concurrent. It still has the front shutter release, which is kind of nice. I always like these. But you got a regular screw mount. And and these clearly sold much better, right? Well, they, they sold better. They uh, certainly sold uh, a lot more of them. A lot of that's got to do with price, but because changing to screw mount meant that, and also getting rid of the the complicated rewind system with the accessory shoe, save save them save them money, no doubt. And there's a big difference in price between the Pentamatic, which is at the lower end of SLRs already, uh, even though it's got a thousand at the thousand top speed in the bayonet mount, uh, pushed it up. Uh, in, in the scale of camera prices, but it was still near the bottom end. The uh, the M42 mounts were much cheaper. It, it knew it was struggling with the Pentamatic. The, the Pentamatics were around. I mean, I think the last one, what did we calculate, Chris? The made, made, last one made in about, uh, did you say January 1961? Yeah, the, uh, the Pentamatic 2 looks like it went out of production in January of 61. Yeah, 61. But uh, what about the S? When did that go out of production? The S, the S made it through late 62. So the S was more of a cousin to uh, the very first M42 mounts. I The part I wanted to add was Yushika had to face the grim reality that they weren't going to make a bunch of uh, uh, proprietary mounted uh, pentamatic lenses. And there was already a ton of M42s being made by almost everybody. So by switching over to the M42, they immediately increased the amount of uh, potential market. People weren't going to invest in the pentamatic uh, mount and stuff. And I see what you have in your hand there. Is that the black J3? Yeah. Yep. Yep. That that to me is still without question the most elegant uh, early 60s 35 millimeter camera with its matching lens. Yoshika never talked about it. I have literally dozens of brochures from that period both English language and Japanese. So Chris, when I reviewed this camera, I pointed out something to you that I don't think you had ever noticed that there is a difference in the shutter speed dial between the Chrome and black uh, J3s. But other than that, there does not appear to be any other difference. Like you said, Yashika did not advertise this camera at all. So this is a little bit of a mystery of a camera, but yeah, it's, it's, there's not too many black body Yashikas from this era that, didn't get common again until the TL series later. Well, right. And that was their very first black-bodied camera. And they made them as a batch because the numbers on the camera, the serial number on the camera body and the matching lenses are all within a, you know, a certain range. And what I find unique is even reading those Japanese brochures, you would think somewhere in there, they would say Yashika's first uh, pro uh, level looking camera and there's no mention of it anywhere. The, the marketing people totally missed the boat on it. And of course, Yashika never thought that somebody like Paul and I and you would be interested in their cameras, you know, 60 years in the future. So, you know, the, the marketing department didn't leave their notes <laughs> that said, hey, this is why we decided to uh, to do it. Instead, they just, you know, made it, moved on. And, and people like Paul and myself are left scratching our heads and uh, trying to figure out the where and why. But I, I have still two of those even though I've sold two of them recently and they never fail to amaze me just how, how beautiful they are. And the finish, once again, if they're kept in a dry environment, the, the finish on that black is just stunning. So y- Yashika Mythbusters, around the same time this camera was made, uh, the Yashika Lynx rangefinders were produced and the SLRs all had the letter J, but is it true that J is for Jaguar? 
one of the one of the models, right? The uh, there's a Japanese brochure that's on Paul's site that I have on my blog. That uh, down in the bottom corner of that one little brochure, it says J and it says Jaguar. And the feeling is that the links made it out there in the world. Uh, you know, the marketing department said we can we'll run with that, but somehow the the Jaguar didn't stick. And uh, but but there is a brochure, so it is documented that that the J meant Jaguar in that very first model. Well, don't you know how the internet works? All you have to do is say it's true, and it must be. So we will we will collectively refer to this as the jaguar 3 well and, and at least there's there's evidence though both on paul's site and on mine of the brochure so at least we're we're starting from a a, a truth factor here so you had the the j3 there was a j4 a j5 a j7 and a jp did i get them all yeah the jp was the odd one in there yeah yeah so then these were all body mounted meters uh, and then when they switched to through the lens metering, they switched to the TL series. So I have a TL Super. Ironically, this was my very first Yashica SLR. So I, I really got attracted to this one because it has this beautiful chrome barrel. The, the entire camera is very shiny. It's uh, a, a mechanical beast. It's got through the lens metering through a, a CDS cell somewhere in there. I, I see what you're talking about with the Tomioka script because it, it, the, the typeface of the lettering on the lens matches that of my pentamatic lens so this one is not seized though i mean it i mean it is smooth as as brand new i mean this thing i i don't know if it's been serviced i doubt it but this thing is, is super smooth the glass is perfect there's no oil on the blades uh purely mechanical camera speeds one to 1000 no goofy ergonomics about the only thing it's missing and this is just a personal preference i've always liked slrs with the split image focus aid and the ground glass, this doesn't have that. It's just the, the microprism circle, but that's minor. But these are great. About the Yashica lens, uh, going back to the Panamatic for a moment, when Tamioka was making that first giant batch of lenses for the Pentamatic, they started making those in September of 1959. And they were suddenly went from zero to hero where they had to produce bunches of them. And uh, I think Paul and I have counted somewhere around 16 or 17,000 of the lenses were made by the time they were done with the uh, the last run of it, but they would make them in big batches. So, you know, those early 59 to early 1960 lenses, uh, they were they were still learning their way. And so they may have used a grease that, you know, just didn't stand up to the test of time. And later on, they, they learned what to switch to. Yeah, just uh, to add to what Chris just said, they, uh, they actually changed the construction of the lens between the 59 models and the later with the, with the 60 prefix. And that was only a little way into uh, 1960. It wasn't very long into it. I can't remember off the top of my head um, how far, but the number of aperture blades, the number of aperture blades changed from, what was it, Chris, nine or like a, a 10, yeah, 10, what, nine. What, nine, uh, nine to six. Nine. Yeah, nine to six. So for a change that early in the, uh, in, in the period, there must have been some issue. So maybe, maybe that's related to... And as Mike has pointed out, the later Yashinon lenses, especially if they've been taken care of, are, are really stunning performers. Flicks are, are solid. The focusing is smooth as, as silk. And uh, I think the barrels are some of the most uh, stunning and elegant. I, I think what you're holding in your hand, the other one you showed just before that one, they were designed to, to jump off the shelf. You know, when you went into the camera store, 
you know, someone would see that and that that has a nice look to it. And if you're thinking about the early 1960s with the chrome, uh, you know, lens barrel and the, the you know, relatively clean design of the camera. Uh, remember, it was competing with some pretty strong heavyweights. And uh, someone had to look at that and say, you know, $150 isn't a lot of money for something that looks that good. Theo, do you remember a couple years ago there was a Kickstarter project for a new style of 35mm camera that had interchangeable lens mounts? Wasn't it just called the Reflex? Yeah, I think that was run out of Russia or something. There was one. That's correct. When they were trying to get money for this new style of brand new, it would have multiple lens mounts. The lens that they always had mounted to the Kickstarter images was this Chrome Yashika Yashinan one eight because for the same reason you mentioned, Chris, it's just so pretty. You know, it's it it almost I don't know, like it's you know it's pretty. So real quick, I I know we will get yelled at by the the listeners if we don't at least mention some of the rangefinders, the fixed lens rangefinders of the of the sixties. I already briefly talked about the links. Oh, which one is that, Theo? Is that the thirty five CC? That's the thirty five GL. GL, the GL. Yeah, it's a beautiful camera. It's it's actually one of the most popular ones on my blog, actually, that uh, that constantly gets searched and uh, read up on. Yeah, I have the CC over there somewhere, which has the wide-angle lens. The Lynx 14 is a beast of a camera. It's one of the fastest fixed lens rangefinders. It has a seven-element F1.4 lens on it. I know Koa made a fast one. Mimia had the F1.5, the Super Deluxe. The Ministers, I shot a Minister D many, many, many years ago. It was one of the earliest reviews on my site. It has a very run-of-the-mill Yashinon F2.8 lens on it, but it makes razor-sharp images. Really, really nice. The thing I like so much about the these 60s Yashika cameras is none of them were really top of the line, but they always delivered an excellent image quality. And any camera from that era, I don't care whether it's a Zeiss whether it's a Nikon, Canon, whoever is going to need service, right? You cannot expect across the board any camera from this era to always be ready to go right off eBay. You know, if you're buying from a reputable seller like Paul or Chris who says it works, it's going it, to, it works. Finding these cameras in working condition, you cannot go wrong with a Yashica SLR from the 60s or one of their rangefinders. They made so many of them, it would take us forever to cover them all. But I, I just want to, blanket endorse pretty much all of those cameras and and then if we could touch really quickly on two oddball yashikas it, we have these half frame cameras the yashika rapid or rapid which is like a vertical traveling camera you know we talked about that the soviet agat which goes up and down this is a really bizarre camera but even more bizarre and this one i got from kurt i'm super excited about because i had one before uh, this is called the Sequel, which is uh, another vertically traveling 35 millimeter camera. But the really neat thing about this one, which my other one couldn't do, is can you hear that? It's like an auto wind, is it? It uses batteries. It's got a double A battery and it has an automatic film transport. So you press this little lever down and it advances the film fires the shutter and just moves on and you could just hold it down and it just keeps rapid firing taking pictures so <laughs> this is the only one i've ever seen that works every other one i've ever come across is just completely dead the electronics are probably rotted out somewhere on it yashika made some cool 
uh, unique looking cameras too. And, and I'm, I'm really excited to have this one. The Adiron. Yep. There you go. Yes. Yes. The Adiron. I've got one of these. The only other Minox shooting camera that's not a Minox. Anthony calls that the, 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 the ray gun, right? It, the shutter. Yeah. Can you fire it? Will it work? Uh, I haven't used this one yet, so I haven't quite worked out how to get it ready to fire. Sorry. I was going to say, I actually have a Yashica mailer for developing the uh, the film for that camera. The little bag, and you would you would put the film in there, and it has the address in New York that you would send it to. Because there obviously wasn't as many labs, so the whole idea behind the whole thing was to you know, sell you the film and then, but anyway, it's in mint condition. It's a little bag. It's got the little flap on it. You fill out your address and, and you send it off. And uh, I think the postage was like 35 cents or something like that. But um, I don't have those cameras. I just didn't get into the, the Y16 or, you know, the Rapide or the sequel. They're, they're just too odd. Too odd. And, and I, like I said, I was just thrilled to find one that works. Never shot it before, but I hope to. I've got it going. I've got it going. See if I can get this to go through the microphone. Yeah, there you go. It's like it. And that's that's how they all sound because I had one too that sounded exactly the same ways. I don't know what kind of weird gearing those things have, but they have a very distinct shutter firing sound. Paul Rybot, you were hold. What were you holding up there? In the United States, this camera was the the camera of choice for drug stores. The Yashica Electro Thirty Five was uh, sold in basically every drugstore, Osco, little mom and pop chain drugstores. They sold the Electro 35, probably the most common camera in the U.S. after the Argus C3. Everyone had these things. Yeah, they're, they're super easy to find here. They're very easy to find. They're usually, the problem is for people that don't know about them, it used a mercury battery. But there's a guy in the US called the Yashica guy uh, who has uh, made a converter to change it over to a, uh, a six volt battery. It's a has a capacitor in it, a step down, so it, it gives you the right voltage. And they, this one works fine. They, they also have another problem called the pad of death, which is uh, another mechanical issue inside the camera. It's a little more complicated to repair that, but it can be done. I've done quite a bit of research on that. And, and one thing about the, the pad of death is the pad of death is actually supposed to be there. It's because it falls off. And then that's what causes the camera not to work is, is why they die. So the pad of death was essentially like a foam pad that dampened the shutter firing and there's a pin that rides parallel to the lens that has to move up and down to a very specific spot to get the shutter to fire and when that pad rots away like it's made out of the same material that the foam light seals are made out of the pin doesn't move to where it needs to go and it just renders the camera useless and a really weird characteristic of that camera paul you could probably test it right now is when you wind the camera the lever when you almost reach the full extent of the wind lever, you should hear an audible clunk. Can you can you wind it and tell me if it makes a clunking noise? Yeah. That's that's actually good. That's how you know that it's it should be work. I mean, there could be other problems. Right. That's the pad. That's the pen releasing it uh, inside. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't hear it, then you're going to have the problem sooner or later. There's a guy down in uh, Richmond, Kentucky, who who sells the repair service on Etsy. And I've sent him a half dozen cameras and, and he's repaired most of them. But there were two of them that, that had some other problems that were not repairable. So I had him remove the lenses uh, from the cameras. And then I mounted the the, uh, the lenses themselves on M42, 
with a helicoid uh, and stepped them on mirrorless cameras. And they're they're great lenses. I mean, they're really good lenses to use if you're interested in uh, adapting lenses to digital cameras. And if you get that lens removed, you can sell it for way more than the camera. Is that correct? Yeah, the camera lenses are around $100 just by themselves. But they're not meant to be removed. So you have to not only physically detach it from the body, you have to cut off all the wiring. You have to figure out a way to seize the shutter open. Right, but still have the aperture moving. Right. Yeah, so it's it's a lot more involved than just simply hacking a lens off the body, but it's not it's a complicated process, but it's worth doing if you're if you're interested in uh, in uh, shooting adaptive lenses, which I am. But even if you're not though, I mean, I it's great on film too. That is a wonderful camera to shoot. Uh, the rangefinder is almost always accurate on them. I've had pretty good luck with the shutters usually not being stuck on those. I've never found one with a seized uh, focus helix. You mentioned the mercury battery. That is an issue, but there's a ton of adapters you can get on eBay. One neat little fact, actually, is the shutter actually does fire with no power, but only at one five hundredth of a second. So if you were, if you had a Yashica Electro with dead electronics or you didn't have a battery, you could just load in some 400 speed film or 500, you know, the Cinestill or something and uh, just shoot at Sunny 16 at a single shutter speed if you really wanted to. But great, great results from those cameras. The, the Electro 35 was, I mentioned a, few, a little earlier ago about the Minister D as being one of my earlier cameras. I had an Electro even before that, and it was how much I liked the results from the Electro is why I ended up getting the Minister D. So once again, the fixed lens 35 millimeter rangefinder cameras from the very first Yashica 35 all the way through that Electro 35, which I believe was sold through like the late 70s. It, it, the first model came out in 66. So it was in production for over a decade. And like Paul said, they're, I don't know about other areas of the world, but at least in the United States, they're really, really common. You could find them on eBay very easily because there's clearly a ton of them made. And they came in black. You can get the GT. Yeah, the black one was the uh, the they, the professional, I think they called it. The original one, right, was called the professional. And then they stopped calling it that and just called it the GT and then the GTN. And then there was the MG1 was in there somewhere. That was uh, F2.8, uh, scaled down more of a budget. The MG had an F2.8 lens. There was the, what's the one you had, Theo, the GL? The GL, that's got the 1.7. And it is, it's one of the sharpest lenses I've ever used, to be honest. It, it, it is superb. It, it, it just, it's too clean sometimes, actually, interesting enough. But I, I love using it because the, the camera is super accurate and it just, the, the results. Funny enough, I was sent some film from Alan Duncan um, in the UK a couple of years ago to trial out to see what happens when you send film through and you get scanned and x-rayed and all that sort of stuff yeah, all the way out to Australia. And he was sending it to a few people across the world. And I actually didn't hesitate to put that film in that camera. And, and not only was it super clean, it kind of just showed like there was absolutely no effect in terms of what's been, you know, what's being uh, posted through but it, it, it was it was almost like okay well this is you know not even expired film it's it felt like it was fresh it was so clean there was the gs i think which was a smaller body yeah and then i mentioned earlier the electro 35 cc and one thing that i really really like about this camera is it has a 35 millimeter f18 lens so it's both wide angle and fast 
but the depth of field on this lens is, is really, really wide. But I, I remember from shooting it, if you set this thing to like seven feet and you're in the sunlight, like F8 or F11, it's effectively a focus-free camera. So it still has a rangefinder, but you don't even need it. You know, you could you could take this thing out, load in some film, as long as you're not doing any close-ups with it. Uh, you can shoot some really, really wonderful images with this. Hey, Mike, that's a that's a camera you will not see me selling in my Etsy or eBay store. Uh, all of the ones you've been talking about. I mean, I, I love the look of them, especially the CC, but I've just given up on them. Everyone I've ever bought from a local person, uh, and that's me getting a chance to play with it. I go ahead and clean it, inspect it, check it out, test it, and then sell it, and it almost always has a problem. And Really? I've just never had any luck with, with that generation of uh, Yashica cameras, so I, I no longer sell them. I, 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 I just stay with the SLRs and stuff. It, everyone I've ever owned, always something happens to it. it. It is typical, though. I know the Minolta 7S2, the Konica Auto S3. There were a few others. A Vivitar made one that was these smaller. Like Once you got into the mid to late 70s, range finders was the 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 low end of the quality scale but the the beginning of the electronics era too so that that's not a good combination once um they were no longer considered high-end products but were more and more including electronics they the, the reliability definitely took a hit well chris i'm curious what do you do with for batteries on the uh the slrs that take the the mercury batteries Actually, the ones that I've been using, uh, it's either like I can think the uh, the AX and the FFT, if I'm remembering correctly, they use the weird adapter. So I use that adapter. Oh, okay. But on, on the SLRs that I typically deal with, they either use the button cell on the J models or when you're in the Yashica TL Electro X, um, you use that very common 625 battery, which... I buy dozens of those and, and have them in almost everything I own. If the Canon takes the A1, uses the same battery as the uh, as the Electro X. So that's another beauty about pushing the TL Electro X line is the battery is so common. It's like 2 or $3 for a, a Panasonic, you know, a brand name. It, the battery doesn't tend to leak and stuff. So, uh, you know, someone's looking to get into... Uh, a film camera, a 35 millimeter SLR, and they want a good high-end model, definitely the Electro X, just because the battery is not fussy. And uh, I find the meters are still accurate as all get out. This is essentially an SLR version of the Electro 35. It uses that exact same red and yellow arrow at the top of the viewfinder for metering. And there's even a, a slightly d different version of this called the AX, which has auto exposure. Right. It's stop down only, but it, there was one version of this camera that it's still M42 screw mount and you did need to have the lens made for it. It wouldn't do auto exposure on any screw mount lens. They did make one auto exposure SLR by, by Yashica. Yeah, well, the AX and the FFT towards the end there were pretty odd. I think they were just putting together, like Paul knows, uh, you know, from the early days of the, yeah, the, the, TLRs and stuff, some of the models look like they were just Frankensteins that, you know, they'd throw together whatever parts were in the bin and say, okay, here's the new model. But I have the AX, I've never shot with it. And I have the FFT, which are the last two models. They're kind of hard to find in good condition. Does yours, uh, everything work on it? 
Yeah, this one works. Um, I don't have a battery in it now, but I've actually shot this camera before. The LEDs light up on it, auto exposure system. It's it's a very clunky auto exposure, though. You have to press and hold the button to like open up the iris. And then when you, so you compose while holding down the button. And then when you let go, the lens automatically stops down. And only when the lens is already stopped down does the auto exposure system work. If you try to shoot it with the button pressed in and the shutter release, you'll overexpose everything. So it, it's not by any means the best designed camera. But like you said, I think by that point, they were just trying to do whatever they could to get something out there. And that uh, that button is often missing, if you notice. If, you, if you, Right, it's gone missing. I mean, you can't see this, but it wiggles very easily. It's just cheap plastic. So... I, I don't recommend the AX, but the Electro X is great. The TL Super is great. Uh, mechanical. I love the 35 millimeter rangefinders, the Electros. I'm going to make a judgment call here, and we're going to, unfortunately, I'm sorry, Kyle, punt the uh, CY Yashica SLRs because we're coming up on two hours here, and I just think we would just be rushing through anything we could possibly say. And, and I feel, I know Anthony had to leave too. He hasn't been feeling too good. He's a big fan of those. He's a huge fan. I know he loves the Aria. Uh, I have an AX here I kept trying to show earlier. I also have an RX, which I really like. I've shot the RTS-2, the RTS-3. No, I didn't shoot the RTS-3. I had one, but it was dead. The 159MT, I think, was was another one of those mounts, and that was a, a shared mount. You could get Zeiss lenses in that mount, too, but and they're expensive as hell, but the Ashika versions are in my opinion, just as good optically. Didn't you have a preview also, Mike? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't have it here, but there was Kyocera made, or maybe it wasn't Kyocera. I don't actually know when this camera was made, but it's a contacts preview. It's this flat body, and it has a peel-apart film back. So it accepts like Polaroid 660 series, peel-apart instant film, or you could use Fuji FP100. Oh, I've seen those in local cameras here you see those? i have one i have one so it, it works with the fuji peel apart film you you put the, the film in the back of the camera it has a viewfinder that sticks way up above it like it protrudes way out of the camera there's a reflex mirror and it has the contact cy mount so you mount regular contact cy lenses to it but you use Fuji peel apart or Polaroid 660 film, which they made back then. And you basically use the entire instant film to make 24 millimeter by 36 millimeter instant exposures. So very, very small. The quality of, of film or the image that you get on the peel apart film does not rival that of 35 millimeter slide or negative film. Uh, but I imagine that that was done when testing like studio lights or something. Paul, you could probably explain it. Who would use something like that? It, it, it's a it's a mystery to me, but that's the only thing I can think of. I mean, usually you, people who are doing studio work weren't using thirty five. But I but I meant it was a quick and easy way to shoot. Yeah, that was it. It was to test exposure. Test exposure, and it works like a regular SLR. And like, if there was a way to combine that with what's the name of that thing that you attach to the back of a Nikon F that allows you to use Polaroid speed film? Magni. The speed, speed Magni. magni. If there was yeah. a speed magni version of that, that would be cool. Uh, but unfortunately, no, there's it, it, it you waste 75% of the surface area of the instant film 
and considering how expensive this stuff is today, uh, it's I I would not recommend <laughs> unless you just wanted to have a weird because it's branded contacts. It says contacts. It's black with white letters. It is kind of cool looking, but it would be an incredibly impractical camera to shoot today. I, I think when we come back and talk about contacts, we'll probably have to cover the the point and shoots a little bit because yeah. uh, the Yashica point and shoots are so massively popular, like the T3s and T4s and, and, yep. and those cameras. And then maybe even talk about that abomination that came out a few years ago with the drop-in fake film. <laughs> the Samurais. We'll have we'll do a, we'll do an entire samurai episode. <laughs> the samurai is all it's it's like the the Rapide and the Sequel, that it's half frame, vertically traveling film, but it's an SLR with true through the lens composition. It uh it's got auto exposure and it it, it you hold it like a camcorder. And I shot one and I really liked it, but there's one critical flaw to the camera is that they made an accessory wrist grip that attaches to the camera and it wraps around the back of your grip. But if you don't have that, then you're essentially holding this hard piece of plastic and it is so easy to drop. It is incredibly difficult to hold that camera and walk around without constantly dropping it. So for anybody who's interested in, in I don't know, maybe I just don't have the right size hand for it. Uh, but my experience with it was I hated using it because the the one that I had did not ha- have the the wrist attachment. But I could imagine if you did, it's probably a pretty fun camera to shoot. But half frame SLR vertically traveling auto exposure from the 80s. Very cool. They even made an APS version uh, in the 90s that used APS film. Oh, it's quite hard to find. Have you shot one before, Kyle? Yeah, it's nearly impossible to find a clearly clear lens on those cameras they yeah they do uh, a lot of them have fungus it's quite hard well it's like a 14 element zoom lens that probably came from an era where particulates probably got in there or something that over time just got glued together and over the years yeah this was a great episode i hope you guys liked it as much as i did because i i really geek out on this stuff there's so many cameras we didn't even get to talk about. You know, there's the the Nika, the Nika slash Yashica, that hybrid era, the YF, the YE. There's just other TLRs, other SLRs, rangefinders. We didn't get into the contacts for the Kyocera era. We, we didn't touch the, the, the point and shoots. For a brand that most people, when you talk about Japanese, you always hear Nikon, Minolta, Canon. You know, you don't always hear people mention Yashica as the first brand you think of, but that doesn't—that that has nothing to do with with a lack of of good quality models to shoot. And getting Paul on the show, I would have been happy with either of you guys, but to get both of you here at the same time was a real treat. So I want to thank you, Chris and Paul, for coming. Before we go, do you have any last bits of wisdom for our, our listeners? Well, I, I would say number one, thanks, Mike, for being persistent. In, in asking me to keep coming, you eventually wore me down and uh, I've had a wonderful time and, and it was great to meet you and some of the other uh, people in the field. And of course, uh, I've known Paul now for about 10 years and we've never had a conversation. So it's been fantastic to meet Paul that way. I will throw one camera out there for your listeners and you to think about, and you probably already know about it, is uh, from 1986 to the Yashica LAF. And it's a camera that most people point and shoot, but it is so much, it's such a fantastic camera. And it's the T3, T4 beater. 
because the lens essentially is the same, made in the same factory at the same time. And uh, so anyway, if you go on eBay and you look for a Yashica LAF and you get one, you will not be disappointed with the quality of, uh, of how good the auto exposure is and uh, just how amazingly sharp the lens is on that camera. After the show airs, feel free to raise the prices than any you have in your store, Chris or Paul. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul Sock, uh, any last comments? No, apart from uh, like Chris, uh, thank you. And uh, it's been great to be on and uh, have a chat and also uh, meet Chris for the first time. You're aware of my websites. Uh, a lot of it's thanks to Chris. I mean, he's contributed much, uh, much thought and, and uh, many brochures and information, whatever, over the years. Uh, so no, this is this has been great. And 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 Chris commented my persistence. How many emails do I have to send you? <laughs> Quite a few. He probably got to the point when he saw an email from me. He's like, "Not this guy again." It was easier to say yes and no, <laughs> but I'm glad I did. I'm- well, thank you guys. Well, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Like I said, we record uh, the show announcements are posted. We will be back in two weeks with episode fifty nine. We haven't yet decided on a topic for that one yet, but uh, we'll be sure to get that out as soon as we know what it's going to be. As always, the topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are decided entirely by you. I, I realize that's uh, you know not too true about this episode, but um, Kyle, thank you for coming. Brian had to leave. Mina showed up for a very short period of time, but he was sorry he had to go. Anthony had to drop off early, too. But like I said, we'll be back in two weeks. So good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. The aliens have arrived and they have Yashikawato Rons.